Well, um, it is a joy to open God's Word with you again, so I want to invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture back to 1 Corinthians, specifically 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As I pull up my notes here, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we find ourselves as we've been walking through this a rich letter by the Apostle Paul to a church full of difficulties and problems. So 1 Corinthians 6, our section will be tonight, at least we're going to begin the last half of that chapter, uh, verse 12, all the way down to verse 20. No, we won't cover all of it tonight. That'll um, take us two parts at least. We'll begin it this evening as you're turning there, or maybe you're already there, but I, I probably don't need to try to uh, try very. I probably don't need to try very hard to convince all of you that, much like the Corinthians of Paul's day, the American church finds itself in the midst of a hyper-sexualized culture. We live in a world that eats, breathes, and celebrates what the Bible calls immorality. As Christians, you probably understand this. I mean, if you haven't been living under a rock, you, everywhere you turn, look, uh, we are bombarded daily by immor- immoral pictures, thoughts, propaganda, advertisements, ideologies, pressures, the temptation to sexual sin is around every corner, both literally and digitally. The unbelieving world is obsessed with sex. And then it works around the clock to desensitize us to the evil of sex that is contrary to God's design. And if you think that that It's just a physical and biological and cultural issue. Uh, Think again. There is, the Bible tells us, a spiritual, ideological battle that lies beneath and behind all that you see in our culture in this regard. And you hear it in in the worldview of those who promote free sex and unhindered sort of sexual expression. Their philosophy, and really you could even say their theology, which by the way, everyone has a theology. But their philosophy and the theology of the world comes out in in things like their politicized Slogans, and I'll just start one of them for you. There are many out there, but my guess is I'll give you the first half of it, and my guess is that you're going to be very quickly able to finish the second part. Okay, ready for this? Here's, this, here's one of the slogans common today My body, my choice. Well, in this section, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 12 through 20, Paul is going to be so helpful for us. It, it, it is like I was so shocked as I was studying it this week. It is like he wrote it yesterday. 
This is so eminently practical, and it just proves that uh, there is nothing new under the sun. Paul is going to here show us how a Christian's perspective and a Christian's view of our bodies is actually utterly incompatible with sexual sin and immorality. In fact, I've provocatively titled tonight's message, God's Body, God's Choice. Part one and part two we'll look at in a couple weeks, but let's just read the passage together in its entirety so that you have it in your mind. Follow along with me, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Paul begins this section this way, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. God's body, God's choice. Now, having addressed the Corinthians' failure to discipline the immoral man in chapter 5, and then having just written, if you remember, back in verse 10, that neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals will enter the kingdom of God, Paul now turns his attention to tackle the issue of sexual sin that he's already mentioned in this letter. He he turns now to tackle it head on, to deal with it definitively at its um, philosophical level. It was obviously a struggle for the church in the Corinthian culture, and his, his burden if I could summarize it in, this, in these verses, is to show the Corinthians how a lifestyle of immorality is antithetical to the gospel and their union with Christ as believers. In other words, yet again, Paul is concerned here about their testimony, namely that now their practice in the area of sexual ethics would actually match their theology of the body. Maybe you, maybe you noticed it as I was reading it, but the word for body shows up, I think it's eight times in this section. You see, Paul is going to put 
forth for us a theology of our bodies that should give us the right way to think about sexual immorality and sexuality, human sexuality, and what its purpose is, where it falls in the created order. Now, we might be tempted to think that those who pursue sexual sin typically have, have too high of a view and lay, put too much importance on their bodies. I mean, wouldn't that normally be what we would conclude? But what's interesting here in this section is that we find the exact opposite to be true from Paul's perspective. In other words, I think you'll be surprised as we walk through this that Paul now actually is going to argue with, for us in this passage that immorality is the result of, listen, Christian, not thinking highly enough about your body. Beloved, Christians are not prudish. In one sense, we could say God created sex and He deemed it very good. Nor should Christians be seen as underappreciating the bodies that God has given to us because we're against sexual sin and against immorality. Rather, the biblical teaching tonight is that only Christians, listen, only Christians have a right and real and true and lasting appreciation for the body and for sex as God made it. Only Christians. Christians actually have a higher view of the body, a higher view of sex than the world. Do you believe it? The Bible tells us that sexual sin, therefore, actually then demeans and devalues the body and strips it of its God-given design and dignity. That's what we learn tonight. It's so important. So when our culture idolizes sex, we should, as Christians, respond in this way. That is is far too low a view of our bodies and the way we should use them. Because as Christians, we believe the body is we believe the body is more than a clump of biological cells and matter. To have an eternal and spiritual perspective on life does not mean that we do um, that we see uh, no significance in the things that are physical. Rather, we believe that our physical bodies are essential instruments to be used for God's glory. That's what we're going to see in this passage. See, this is a much higher view of the body that Paul puts forth here than the world has. Paul is going to argue in these verses that this Christian perspective then should fundamentally change the way you view sex altogether. So let's consider his argument. Let's at least begin it. And uh, I'll give you the roadmap for the next uh, for tonight and then I think two weeks from now, because next week Luke is going to be teaching. I'll be, uh, still be in Florida driving back. So, But here's your roadmap for the next two times, tonight and the next time we're in 1 Corinthians. I want to debunk from this passage four major lies about our bodies and sexuality. 
that the world sort of pumps at us. Four major lies um, that Paul is going to dismantle in this section. I'll, I'll even give them to you right up front. And then we'll repeat them as we go. But lie number one is this. Lie number one is about liberty. Okay? So that's the category, the topic, if you will, that this lie falls under. Lie number one, and it's this. You are free to do whatever you want with your body. You see that in verse 12. We'll look at that tonight. Lie number one is about liberty. You're free. Here's the lie. You're free to do whatever you want with your body. Verse 12. Lie number two is about destiny. It's about destiny. And it's this. What you do with your body is eternally inconsequential. What you do with your body, the culture says, the world supposes, is actually eternally inconsequential. In other words, it just stays here. What's done here stays here, kind of like Vegas, okay? (laughs) And then we'll see that in verses 13 and 14 for tonight. The next time, line number three is about spirituality. It's about spirituality. And it's this, here's the lot. What you do with your body is spiritually inconsequential. Because I think actually some Christians believe this very easily because they've, we, we sort of tend in our Western culture to divorce the body and the spirit and physical and spiritual. And Paul's going to show us very clearly verses 15 through 18, that no, there are spiritual consequences and effects for what you do in the body. So that's lie number three. What you do with your body is spiritually inconsequential. The last lie, you probably guess it, verses 19 and 20, it's a lie about sovereignty. Then that's captured by this statement, your body belongs to you. Your body belongs to you. So those are the four lies that Paul is going to pick apart. Well, like I said, we'll only cover the first two tonight. Okay, so let's look at the first one, verse 12. First lie, you are free, the culture tells us, to do whatever you want with your body. Notice what Paul seeks to correct about their wrong thinking in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now here we find two parallel statements. Both include the same first part. All things are lawful for me, right? Both are followed then by a qualification in the second part. And the first part represents the lie. The second part represents Paul's correction to this cultural lie about our bodies and sexuality. Notice what the lie then was that the Corinthians were prone to believe. Frankly, it sounds very much like something that our permissive culture would resonate with also, doesn't it? (laughs) 
the slogan, the worldview was simply this, all things are lawful for me. All things are, in other words, permissible for me. Now, we don't know for certain, but this was likely um, a direct quote that Paul was using from the Corinthians who lived their life, in other words, under this banner and philosophy. Perhaps they had this, uh, you know, perhaps they had bumper stickers on their chariots. All things are lawful for me. The phrase shows up, um, we think that, scholars believe that, because the phrase shows up again in uh, chapter 10, verse 23, in Paul's discussion about how Corinthians should handle the gray areas of conscience. So at the very least, the phrase likely embodied the kind of thinking that lay behind the Corinthians' many problems, even if it wasn't a direct quote. This, is where the, this was their mindset. This was essentially... What, what, what captured the ethos of their day. This is the cultural lie being pumped out in Corinth. And it's the same one that we face today. It's the same one. That our culture says we have full and free autonomy with our bodies. Whatever we want to do. Then the mindset is exactly how it sounds. It was a blanket endorsement of unqualified freedom and and applied, you think, applied in this context to our bodies and to sex, the consequences of this worldview are probably pretty obvious. The perspective is we're free to do with our bodies as we please. Therefore, nothing is off limits when it comes to my sexual desires and fulfillment. I can pursue that. It feels right. It is right. So how does Paul respond to this lie? Well, he responds, if you notice, by correcting their view of freedom, of of taking their understanding of of liberty and adjusting it. In other words, he he comes at this and, and he says, look, sexual freedom is not simply a matter of this question, well, am I allowed to do it? But rather, we should consider two other questions. First, to notice, here's the first question we should consider, is it beneficial for others? Notice what he says here, all things are lawful for me, but, Paul adds a qualifier, but not all things are profitable. Now, the word translated profitable here literally means to bear together with uh, and and often shows up in contexts that are corporate or communal, uh, describing that which is, here's how we would put that, which is the common good or beneficial for everyone. I'll give you some examples. Um, If you're taking notes later in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, in a section about spiritual gifts and the use of those gifts, Paul's going to say to each one, uh, to each Christian, in other words, in the body of Christ, is given the manifestation of the Spirit or a spiritual gift. And then this, for, here's our word, the common good. In other words, each Christian, Christian, you as a member of Christ, have been given a grace gift to use 
for the spiritual benefit of others around you in the body of Christ, the mutual benefit of the rest of the church. That's this word, profitable, beneficial. Um, Later in chapter 10, verse 23, as I mentioned earlier, where this slogan shows up again, Paul uses this word again as a corrective, but there he adds, listen, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable, same word. And then he adds this, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. In other words, he still has there, I think that helps explain it a little bit. He is thinking of that which is beneficial, that which is profitable for others around you. And one more, Let's move away from Paul. How about Jesus in a context where Jesus is talking about the negative effects of sin on others, on our brothers and sisters around us. Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, he uses it there. It would be, here's our word, better. It would be more beneficial for the man who, who, who causes his brother to stumble, Jesus says there, to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That would be better than causing your brother to stumble in sin. So I think Paul Paul has in mind here the reality that our freedom then should take into consideration that which is good for others and not just ourselves. Look, that, that is essential to the Christian ethic. Look, and this goes beyond just the use of our bodies, but it certainly applies to that, doesn't it? In short, what he's saying here is the Christian's freedom is not unqualified autonomy, but rather it should be constrained by love for people around you. That is to say, if it will hurt others, then we aren't free to do it. Look, this agrees then with Paul's teaching in Galatians 5 verse 13, for you are called to freedom. And some of us might say, amen. (laughs) But listen, he says, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Or literally, through love, slave one another. Serve as a slave. You see, there is a there is a restricted sense to our freedom. This is absolutely true when it comes to the use of our bodies for sex. Therefore, every act of immorality should be seen, think about this, as outside the bounds of Christian freedom because every act of immorality is not an act of loving, beneficial service to others. Rather, it's the result of selfishness and a disregard for God's law. It is actually Matthew 18, 6, causing your brother to stumble, which Jesus says, it'd be better for you to drown. But do you think that Christ has set you free so that you could do whatever it is that you want without consequences or without consideration of others? That is not true Christian freedom. That may be the world's definition of freedom, full autonomy regardless of what other people are hurt by, that's not true Christian freedom, though. In fact, notice what Paul says next. Not only should we ask, is this beneficial for others? Here's a second qualification. Notice in the second part of this verse, 
we should also ask, could it be enslaving to me? Look, look what he says. He says, all things are lawful for me. And the second part this time brings the corrective. But Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. Like here Paul goes one step further in qualifying our Christian freedom. Not only should love for others constrain me in my bodily, bodily choices, but, but so should self-control. One commentator Barrett writes this, that it is possible in the name of freedom, listen, to enslave oneself. You say, how does that happen? What's the danger here? Well, listen to Charles Hodge. He puts it well. He says insightfully, this is a scriptural rule which Christians often violate, even Christians, right? They are slaves to certain forms of indulgence. Do you know anybody like this? Which they defend on the ground that they're not in themselves wrong, forgetting that it is wrong to be in bondage to any appetite or habit. So one more commentator says this, Garland says this, Paul reminds them then that embodied humans easily can become hostage to their bodily appetites. Look, it's not enough to just say, well, can I do it or why not? See, before we can simply claim our right to do something, even if we deem that it won't harm anyone else, there's still this consideration, right? Could this activity potentially enslave me? Might this thing that I believe is and claim as a freedom for me turn into something that I, that I now all of a sudden can't live without and, and practically then become my master? Like other places in Scripture warn against this kind of thing. You know, that we would be enslaved even to our bodily lusts and desires, the base drives of our appetite. I actually read last time, Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul describes one of the ways in which he describes the enemies of the cross there, who set their minds on earthly things. He says this of them, whose God is their appetite. They're controlled by the base desires and hormones. Second Peter 2 verse 19 puts it this way, For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. St. Paul was determined not to let any bodily earthly appetite of his, including his sex drive, dominate his life or control him. In fact, if you fast forward later to chapter 9 verse 27, he'll write there, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You see, that's the right order. My body is my slave, not the other way around. I'm not a slave to its appetites. Listen, many people, even Christians today, have argued that if you, things like this. Here, let's flesh it out really practically, okay? I've heard Christians actually argue that watching pornography in the privacy of my own home and gratifying myself isn't wrong on this basis in this because it doesn't harm anyone else. And I might grant them that, but look, they might pass that first part of the test, but they're not going to pass this. 
Paul says very clearly here that not only should we consider how this will affect others, but we should also ask the question, will this enslave me? How will this damage and harm myself? See, true biblical bodily freedom is not doing whatever I want with my body. Real freedom is not full autonomy without regard to anything or anyone else. When it comes to the use of your body, Christian, especially as it relates to sex, you must consider, one, what benefits others, and two, what endangers yourself. You have to. Paul says there are more questions to be had. So, believer, don't buy the lie that this world is throwing at you, that you have full, unfettered liberty with your body. God says you cannot do whatever you want with your body. And we'll see more about why next time. But notice Paul continues to debunk their wrong thinking here in a second lie that he seeks to tackle. And it comes in verses 13 and 14. And that lie is this, what you do with your body is eternally inconsequential. In other words, what happens here and what's done here stays here and it doesn't affect eternity. But notice Paul's argument in the next two verses. He picks this apart surgically. Look at what he says, verse 13 to 14. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. You see here, the lie that is being corrected specifically is that what we do with our bodies in regards to sexual activity is inconsequential in eternity. It's just... It's just bodily stuff, like eating and drinking. You see what Paul's getting at here? And here's the Cliff Notes version up front to the point and the punchline. Paul is drawing a very obvious contrast between the destiny of food, which is temporary, and the destiny of our bodies, which is actually eternal. Notice how he does this. Just like in verse 12, there are two parallel statements here that have two parallel parts, which make for two very important points. Notice first, notice the first part of the first statement. It's this, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. That's just the first part of the first statement. Now that is supposed to be parallel to the first part of the second statement. And I'll point it out to you. And it's this, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Those two are the first parts of those two statements that should be parallel to one another. In other words, consider now then, when you put those two side by side, consider the first correction that Paul makes here. What does he change? What does he do in that second one? Think about this. While he affirms the fact 
that food is for the stomach and stomach is for food. And those two things have a mutual, natural relationship and purpose. Do you notice what he does in the second one? He, He denies the fact that the body is for immorality. He says the body is not for immorality. It's not the same as food is for the stomach. You can't draw that comparison. In other words, he, Paul here, is categorically rejecting the idea that the body was made for sex in the same way that food was made for the stomach and digestion. You see the argument? That that is possibly what the Corinthians believed about sexual fulfillment and activity. It's likely they had come to think of sex in the same way as they thought of food, that sex was just another biological process with no eternal or moral ramifications and significance. And guys, listen, isn't that precisely how so many people today think of it? Like this, This could have been written yesterday, I'm telling you. This is how the culture and those who don't know God think about that function. It's just purely physical to them. It's just biological. It's hormone-driven. The world often speaks of sexual health in the same way they speak of dietary health. Have you seen that? To the world, they belong in the same realm, just like the Corinthians. Our culture similarly argues that much like food, sex is just a basic bodily need that should and can be met whenever you're hungry. But look, clearly Paul disagrees and corrects the analogy here. His argument is that sex is not at all like eating. Look at his argument here. In other words, he says, no, the body is not just a vessel for sex. And sex is not just a neutral, natural, biological function that can be satisfied however one pleases. There's a disconnect here. There's discontinuity. Unlike the relationship between food and the stomach... We're not just to gratify our body's appetite for sexual fulfillment whenever we want, like mere animals. Listen, Christian, just because your body wants to do it, even if your hormones are involved, it's not a a sound biblical argument or rationalization that cannot justify sexual sin. There's a higher principle here that Paul gives that should govern your bodily decisions and actions, especially when it comes to this area of sex. There's a more profound spiritual and eternal reason why you would curb your normal biological drive for sex. And what is that higher purpose and principle? Notice, he puts it positively this way, the body's not for immorality, but... What was it made for? For the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. That's the parallel. It's not food and stomach, body and sex. It's actually food and stomach, body and Lord. Your body was made for God, for worship, for serving Him. 
instead of thinking of the body as purely a temporary vehicle for sexual appetites to be fulfilled, Paul raises the status of the human body up to a holistic instrument that is meant to be used to serve Christ with. Listen, this is why I say the Christian's view of the body is so much higher, isn't it? Than the world's view. Listen, Christian, your body was not ultimately and primarily made for sexual fulfillment, though God in His perfect wisdom did design it for that capacity. Like we're not saying there isn't that capacity or that in its right context that it's a wonderful gift. But that's not its ultimate goal or purpose or intention. You don't serve that with your body. You serve Christ. Paul says here that your body has much, a much higher purpose. It was made for God. It was made for worship. It was fashioned with the glory of your Creator in mind. Its grandest purpose, its most meaningful use is to carry out God's will in this life and earthly existence. But I love what he does. Notice he's not just in this life is that your body's purpose. Notice the second part of the two statements and how they're different. Did you notice the first? Notice the middle of verse 13. The second part of that first statement in reference to food and stomach, Paul says, God will do away with both of them. But in verse 14, in reference to our bodies now, Paul says that our bodies have a very different destiny. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. That's what's parallel to the statement that He'll do away with food and stomach. You see the, the comparison here? You see the contrast? He's going to do away with the first two things, but He's, he's going to raise eternally the second two things. He's already raised the Lord and He'll raise you as well. One is temporary. One is eternal. That's the biggest difference here. By the way, you don't see it in the English. But verse 14 starts with the exact same four Greek words that verse 14 begins with. Verse 14 and 13. They, they both start with the exact same four, first four Greek words. But God both. So on the one hand, here's what Paul is saying. God will do away with or nullify or make void or abolish. That's what that word means. Render useless and ineffective first the relationship of those first two things. Between food and the stomach. Which, by the way, is another sermon for another time about the fact that we won't need to eat in heaven. Okay, that's really interesting to ponder. There will be no bathrooms in heaven. I mean, seriously, that's Paul's implication here. That food and digestion will be no more when the eternal state arrives. But stop thinking about that for now. <laughs> Don't you see how the fact that, look, that the fact that those two things have only a temporal relationship and will one day be over, 
is proof itself that the body as a whole was made for more than biological functions. Listen, Jesus himself said, Mark chapter 7, verse 18 and 19, Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him, but it does not go into his, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? He'll go on to say, no, what defiles is that which comes out of the heart, proceeds from the heart, and he names immorality as one of those things. In other words, this, your, your diet, here's what Paul's just trying to say here in verse 11, your diet does not make a difference in eternity. Some of you are saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah for that, right? <laughs> But listen, Paul's bigger point here is that this is not true about the relationship between your body and the Lord and how you use your body for the Lord. Notice Paul says specifically in contrast to the temporary nature of the relationship between food and stomach, as for the relationship between the Christian's body and the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, they share a fate as well. But theirs is not a temporary perishing fate. Theirs is, their destiny is one of life and power for all eternity in the resurrection. Now God, Paul says, has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Charles Hodge summarizes this quite simply. He says, look, the relation between our organs of digestion and food is temporary. The relation between Christ and the body is permanent. Beloved, just as God raised Jesus' body up from the grave, you know, the Bible teaches, so he will raise your body up one day in the resurrection if you're in Christ. Right? And you say, why? So that you might serve him forever in perfect holiness with the new and glorified body. Listen, a body that will still be yours, but now fashioned for eternity. Think about that. One that will, in one sense, still be recognizably you, but very much better and gloriously outfitted for perfect worship. This is the hope that we have as believers and this is the difference between the relationship and f with food and digestion and our bodies and the Lord. Listen, here's the promise from other passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore we've been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6, verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Romans 8, verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You know, Ephesians 2, verse 5 tells us that if we're in Christ, then God has in one sense already made us alive together with Christ. Because of your union with him, Philippians chapter 3, verse 21 tells us that one day when Jesus returns, he'll transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Look, that is the promise. 
And this is a precursor, if you will, to what he's going to teach in this very letter later on in chapter 15, where he will, Paul will expound on this idea of our hope for the resurrection, those of us who've been united to Christ. The bottom line for now is this, look, the reality of our union with Christ has bodily implications for eternity. Did you realize that? Just think about this. Just like Jesus now has a body for the rest of eternity, the Son of God will always and forever now into eternity future have a body. And in that same way, you also will have a body for eternity if you've been united to Christ. Because, listen, here's Paul's point, that is what the body is for. That's what it's for. That's what God fashioned it for. That's what He made it to do. Your body is made to worship. It is for the Lord, for eternity. One writer says this, Paul assumes that the body is not an outer shell that the soul will slough off at death. No, the future does not promise redemption from the body, but the redemption of the body. You see, there's a very big difference there. This is why, guys, I think the kind of Christian teaching maybe you've heard out there that's shallow about heaven that portrays our eternal state as some disembodied, soulish existence, you know, on clouds, playing harps, whatever. It, that's misleading. The Bible teaches there will be a new heavens and a new earth where we will live physically, bodily, forever. And yes, we will have bodies that will no longer need to digest food. And that's so interesting to think about. But Paul's point here is then this. We should not imagine, like some of the Corinthians did then, that what we do with and in this body now is of little or no eternal consequence. You see the connection he's making now? Listen, Remember back to verse 10? Because immorality done in the body can keep you from the kingdom. Paul will go on to write in the same, to the same church in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Listen to the language, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. See Paul's point now in verses 13 and 14, what we do with our bodies regarding sex then is not the same as what we do with our bodies regarding food and drink. What's the difference? Just to summarize then, for one, our bodies are not intended for sex like food is intended to be eaten. Rather, our bodies serve a much greater, all-encompassing spiritual and moral purpose, that is, serving the Lord. And secondly, while food and digestion are relegated to this temporal existence and will one day be rendered inconsequential, this is not so with our bodies. 
our bodies and what we do with them have eternal significance because of the resurrection. Guys, we will carry them with us into eternity. We will serve the Lord with them forever. So, guys, don't believe the lie. What we do sexually with our bodies does indeed matter in eternity. It goes, it, it has an impact. There are implications for it beyond the here and now. It's not just a lump of cells. Next time, we'll see how it all, all we'll see how this, your body also matters spiritually not just in eternity, but here and now. And Paul saves his heaviest arguments for last. So we're debunking four major lies about our bodies and sexuality from this passage. We've seen the first two. First lie, look, that is so common, one that we hear even today, you are free to do whatever you want with your body. Paul says, no, you're not. (laughs) You're not. You should consider what's good for others. And love, and you should consider what's good for yourself, even what will potentially, could potentially master you. And the second lie is what you do with your body is eternally inconsequential. And of course, Paul's answer to that is no, one day this body will be raised with Christ. So, Ask yourself tonight, do you have a wrong view of Christian freedom? Do you have a wrong view of your physical body and its appetites? Yeah. We need to take our thoughts and conform them to the Word of God. Listen, guys, you need to think rightly about your bodies. Um, maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've ever thought about that. You know, maybe for some of you, your parents have said, no, I don't want you thinking about that at all. <laughs> it's all bad. No, Paul's going to say, look, you need, to, you need to renew your mind and think as God thinks. You need to think much more highly than this world does about your body. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this challenging truth and This is a problem that we face even now. Lord, sexual immorality, sexual sin is all around us. How can we guard ourselves against it? Well, we thank you for your word. It is sufficient uh, to keep us faithful. Lord, we pray that you'd use this passage even in coming weeks to, to... Fortify in us the convictions that we'll need to face this culture. Lord, we want to honor you with our bodies. We want to present to you our bodies as living sacrifices. We want to be holy and pleasing to you. So, Lord, have your way with our bodies, we pray. But we know that begins with thinking about our bodies rightly. So, so, Lord, do away with all the lies that we may have believed in from this world. Rewrite and reprogram our minds concerning this 
so that we would be holy and pure and that we would be guarded against sexual immorality, this great sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.